It is good to see y'all today. And we're starting a new series today called Christmas Surprises because there are a lot of things about the Christmas story that we hear over and over and over again. Every year we hear it, at least once. There are lots of things about the story of the birth of Jesus that we overlook or maybe we never noticed in the first place. And this is the perfect year to talk about that because 2020 is going to be a different kind of Christmas for most of us. I know that I, as a pastor, I miss the approximately one-third to one-quarter of our congregation that still, for health reasons, are staying home. And I miss them very much. Some of them are watching us right now. I just want you to know I miss you. And it's not going to be the same kind of Christmas without you. Some of you are not going to, not going to travel, or maybe if you do, you're not going to go to the same places. You're going to be trying to keep people ha- uh, healthy. And, and I know that I'm, I'm going to not go to certain Christmas parties that every year I usually go to. So lots of things are going to be different this year. And it's a perfect year to talk about the fact that we get so familiar with this Christmas story, we miss some things that are important. Like, for instance, the family of Jesus, the family the Lord was born into. We think we know them because we see them in the nativity set every year, Mary and Joseph looking down at this perfect little child. You know you know what the carol says, no crying he makes. Whoever wrote that didn't have a baby, I guarantee you. And so we think we know, but I'm here to tell you we don't. I just want to start by saying this. There are no perfect families. There is no such thing on this earth as a perfect family, and there never will be. And I think that's important to get out of the way, because when people come to church, we put on our best, right? I'm not saying we're being fake. I'm saying we are, we are on our best behavior. We're dressed well. We look the best we can look. I mean, look around you. That's, this is as good as it's going to get out of, out of us, right? Nobody wears a sign that says, I yelled at my wife this morning. Right now, I'd love to put my kids up for adoption. Nobody says things like that in church. And so you come to church, and I know I'm being, I'm, I'm being silly, but you come to church And deep down inside, there's a lot of you that are heartbroken. A lot of you, maybe you had a big fight on the way to church this morning. And you're still a little steaming about it. Maybe maybe you're here, but there's somebody that you wish was here that isn't. And that has you upset. Maybe somebody you've been asking to come every Sunday and they still won't come. Maybe there's somebody that you're estranged from and, and it breaks your heart to know that We used to have this great relationship and we're bound by blood and yet we don't even talk anymore. Maybe there's somebody in your family that struggles with addiction or with mental illness or or maybe just there's just bitterness there. And there's chaos in your family. I want you to know that it's a very isolating feeling to go through family troubles because you can get the sensation that it's just us. We're the only ones messed up. You know, I, my family's the only one that, that's experienced divorce. You know, I'm the only single person, you might be thinking, who wishes she was married, or I'm the only married person who wishes she was single. I, I'm, my kids are the only ones that, that aren't on the right path, right? And it's just not so. You come to church and you look at, a, at all these seemingly perfect families and you say, what's wrong with me? Well, I'm your pastor, so I'm going to tell you what's wrong with you, okay? Nobody else will, so I'll tell you. It's the same thing that's wrong with me. We're sinners. We are sinners. We can't get it right. It's the way we were born. And you know what's wrong with your family? Your family's a bunch of sinners too. When you get a bunch of sinners under the same roof, there's going to be problems. There's going to be dysfunction. There's going to be trouble. 
There are no perfect families, not just in our lives, but for all time. I mean, you go back into Scripture. In fact, if, if if, if you're knowledgeable about the Bible, do a little inventory sometime of all the families you can remember reading about in the Bible and ask yourself, what did those families experience? Let me tell you, they experienced polygamy, adultery, jealousy, deception, favoritism, infertility, murder, rape, incest, children rejecting the teachings of their parents, and that's just in Genesis. And it doesn't get better after that. And you might say, okay, Jeff, I get that, but Jesus's family was perfect, right? I mean, you got Mary, she's perfect. You got Joseph, he's a righteous man. That's the only perfect family, right? Well, we're about to see how imperfect Jesus's family was. Let's start with the fact that Jesus was born to a desperately poor. Nobody in this family, nobody in this room has ever experienced the kind of poverty the family of Jesus lived in daily. Desperately poor, and let's not forget unmarried couple when Jesus was born. Now, you and I know because we know the scriptures that they weren't pregnant because they had sex out of wedlock. They were pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. But do you think the people of Nazareth knew that? Or if they had heard it, do you think they believed it? Now, I don't have any proof about what I'm about to say, but I suspect that's part of the reason why Mary, when she was, as the King James puts it, great with child, why she accompanied Joseph on this long trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem When she didn't have to, they weren't even married yet. Why would she leave her hometown? Her mom, her grandparents, everybody who could have been there for the birth, unless she was trying to get away from the busy bodies in Nazareth. And some of you know what this is like. Some of you have been through this, either from your birth or the birth of a child that you yourself had. I I remember reading a story about a a little boy who was born in in a little town up in the hills of Tennessee long, long ago. And his daddy was a doctor, but daddy wasn't married to his mom. In fact, he was engaged to another woman. So at first, the dad didn't claim this little boy. He grew up the first 10 years of his life living with his grandmother. His grandmother would take him every week, every Sunday to the little Methodist church in their hometown, and he hated it. He hated it because every Sunday he would sit in those pews and he would look around at all those families in the pews around him and there was, there was a father in every one of those pews and every one of those families except his. And it just reminded him of who he was and it reminded him that those families were probably looking at him and speculating and guessing who's his dad, who is the man who is his father. And one day at the end of service, his worst nightmare occurred because every Sunday, as soon as church was over, he would, he would hit the bricks and he would get out to the parking lot as quickly as possible so that no one would talk to him. But on this particular Sunday, here he is seven or eight years old and the preacher did it, pulled a fast one and got to the back of the church while the closing prayer was being prayed. And so that boy was trapped and he tried to sneak past, but the preacher, this great big man with a long beard and a gravelly voice, just a terrifying figure, grabbed him by the shoulder and said, now you're the child of, and then paused. And that was his worst nightmare, that he's going he's gonna to out me in front of everyone. And we'll come back to that story in just a minute, but Jesus experienced that growing up. Now, the only story we have of Jesus from his childhood, believe it or not, there's just one. One story about the Lord that we know between the time he was two and the time he was 30, and that's in Luke chapter 2, when his parents leave him behind at the temple. Unintentionally, they go back and get him. The only reason I mention that is because that's the last time in the Bible we see the name of Joseph. 
Joseph, the father of Jesus, is never mentioned again after Jesus is 12, which leads just about every Bible scholar in the world to determine that Joseph must have died when Jesus was a young man, before, certainly before he reached his 30s and started his public ministry. And, and that's hard enough. Some of you know what it's like to lose a parent at an early age, but it's even harder in the ancient world because if you're the oldest son, when your dad passes on, no matter how old you are, whether you're 13 or 93, when your dad, okay, that's impossible, but when, when your dad passes away, if you're the oldest son, you are now in charge. You are now the head of the household. And we don't know when this happened for Jesus, but let's say it was 14 or 15 or 16. You can imagine the burden that was placed on him at that stage. You're in charge. You're responsible for caring for your mother. You're responsible for making sure the family has everything it needs. And this part makes it even worse. Look at John 7, 1 through 5 with me. John 7, verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now that last sentence, that verse 5, is enough to break your heart alone. But pay attention to what his brothers were saying. Jesus was staying at home in Galilee, even though the temple of God was in Jerusalem, and that's where the religious leaders were, because he knew they wanted to kill him, and it wasn't his time yet. And his brothers say, okay, if you're such a big deal, go prove it. Go to Judea. Go and be tested by the leaders of our people, even though they knew that he was, his life was wanted in that area. Why would they be so cold? How could brothers be so unfeeling? Now, some of you know, some of you are a younger sibling, and so you've grown up in a situation where you had a certain level of resentment for your older sibling, maybe because you got tired of hearing, why can't you be as well-behaved as he was? Why can't you be as smart as she is? Why can't you be as athletic as he is? Why can't you be as sweet as she is? I, I had a woman in a church that I pastored once named Bess. Bess was nearly 100 when I knew her. And if I get to 70 and I have half of her wit and energy that she had at 100, I would thank the Lord. She was a pistol. She told me a story once that I love. So Bess grew up in a family where she had an older sister who was, quote unquote, the pretty one. Now, ladies, can you imagine if you had a sister who was the pretty one, what does that make you, right? What am I, the dorky one? I don't know. So Bess grows up in this environment, and one day it's laundry day. And the parents say, Bess, it's your turn to do the family laundry. Now, this is over 100 years ago, so some of you know what that means. It means you, you don't throw stuff in a washing machine. You've got a wash tub, and you go get the water, and you've got a washboard, and you've got to scrub every single garment yourself, and then you hang them up to dry, so it's an all-day affair. And Bess says, well, shouldn't my sister help me? Because it's going to take me all day. If she helps me, we'll get it done quickly. And the parents say, oh, no, 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 your sister can't do this. She has a date tonight. And we can't get her all hot and sweaty. She's got to look her best. She's got to look pretty for her date. Now, this burns up best. So you know what she does? She starches her sister's underwear. <laughs> True story. Every bit of it. It makes me itchy just thinking about it, right? Now, now that's, 
That's the dynamic I'm talking about. And we don't know that's what caused Jesus' brothers to feel this way about him, but I imagine that's part of it. Can you imagine how often they heard, James, why can't you be more like Jesus? Jude, by the way, you think it's ironic that Jesus had a brother named Judas? I do. Judas, uh, you know, I hear you're having a hard time over at the Hebrew school. Jesus picked it up lickety split. Why? What's the matter with you? Besides that, and on an even more serious note, I mentioned earlier that when Joseph died, Jesus was the head of the household. And that was fine when he was a carpenter and drawing a salary. When he leaves carpentry behind and becomes an itinerant homeless teacher, he's not drawing a salary anymore. He's not able to care for the family anymore. In the minds of his brothers, I'm sure Jesus had abandoned his responsibility and that burden fell on them. And besides that, keep in mind, Jesus' brothers had never seen him perform a miracle. We know this because John tells us the first miracle Jesus ever performed publicly, the first miracle Jesus ever performed, that is, was when he changed the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. So they didn't see any miracle working power in their brother. All they knew was this was their brother was some goody two-shoes who left the family behind because he thought he was God's gift to the world, literally. And to make things worse, look what happens in Mark chapter 3. We're about to see a part of the story of Jesus that even most Christians aren't aware of, even though it's in the Word of God. Mark 3, 20 through 21. Then he went home. That's talking about Jesus. When it, means, when it says home, it doesn't mean Nazareth where he grew up because by this point, Jesus has left Nazareth and has moved to Capernaum on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, where Peter and Simon, where Peter and Andrew live. So he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Now, I've, this is my third time to preach this sermon. After both of the first two messages, I've had people come to me and say, How could it be that Mary? Because we're talking about Mary here. Mary and the brothers came to Jesus saying, you need to come home. We want to take you home by force because we think you've lost your mind. And people at the end of both services said, how could Mary? He, she heard from an angel. She saw his birth. She knows she gave birth as a virgin. How could, she, how could she do this? Well, number one, she was human. Number two, I'm sure her sons were in her ear saying, mom, have you heard? that the rulers of our people are calling him a traitor, that they're saying he's demon-possessed? Have, have you heard the things he's saying about himself? Have you heard that anybody who believes in him is being thrown out of the synagogue? Don't you think that for our sake, for the sake of our family name and for his own protection, we need to bring him home? He's gone too far. And maybe in her mind, she's thinking, well, I know, I know he's the son of God, but it's not going the way I thought it was going to go. You know, we're going to see next year when we talk about John the Baptist, he went through something similar. Even though he knew what he knew about Jesus, he started to doubt. It can happen. It happened to Mary. You can imagine how that made Jesus feel. In fact, we're about to find out in verse 31 of that same chapter. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And that tells you how Jesus felt. 
At that moment, he felt like, I don't have an earthly family right now. They don't believe in me. For for support, for for comfort, for companionship, for unity, for, for everything that a family provides. Right now, what I have are the people who believe in me. And that sounds harsh, but that's what he was going through. And keep in mind, keep in mind, Jesus was in a tough spot. He couldn't both please his family and do the will of God. And some of you have been there. And some of you have been at that point, especially if you grew up in a non-Christian household. But even if you grew up in a church-going home, it can happen where you know God wants you to take this step. God wants you to do this thing. God wants you to live this way. And your family is like, no, no, that's, that's radical. That's, you're becoming some kind of a holy roller, some kind of a fanatic. We don't want you to do this. We, we don't think this is safe. Just listen to us, and you have to choose. There's a reason why Jesus said the following in Matthew 10, 34 through 36. This is one of those passages we don't like to memorize and quote, but he said, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now don't take that verse out of context because it does not mean that Jesus wants to destroy families. Quite the opposite. You read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you see God loves families, including your family, more than you do. And the whole Bible is pro-family and I'm pro-family. I just want you to understand I grew up in a wonderful family. They're the reason I know about Jesus. I got married the week after I graduated college. I was a child, and yet this woman stuck with me and is, aside from Jesus, the greatest source of blessing in my life. I've got a daughter who's 23 and a son who's 17, and raising them has been an adventure, but it's been the best work I've ever done in my life, and I love them. And so family is incredible, and yet what Jesus is saying here is sometimes family gets in the way of serving the Lord. And when those moments come, you have to choose God's will. Sometimes, sometimes for you to do God's will is going to seem to them like hatred. And you have to choose God's will anyway. That's what he's saying. And at the same time, I know that's a disturbing thing to hear. At the same time, there's a wonderful truth there. When he looks around and says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother, my sister, my mother, my child. What he's saying is, are you listening? Anybody can be a part of my family if they just want to be. Anybody can be brought in. Doesn't matter. See, this world is different. This world, in this world, blood is what matters. Like the people Jesus was talking to assumed, you had to have Jewish blood to be in the family of God. And Jesus says, no, anybody. In our world, it matters who your daddy is, who your mama is, what, how you were born, the kind of family you came up in. Jesus says, baloney, your blood doesn't matter. All that matters is my blood. My blood that I shed for you at the cross is what gets you in. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how worthless you feel, no matter what the world says about you, if you trust in my blood, you're a child of the king and you always will be. So think about, think about the image of adoption. We have some adopt, adoptive families in our church, and the, the New Testament makes it clear that is a beautiful picture of salvation. Salvation isn't just a religious experience. It's literally you becoming part of a new family, a family you don't have any right to be part of. You've just been chosen. You've just been welcomed in. 
Not because of anything you did, because your father said, I want you. I want you just as you are. Of course, I'm not going to leave you that way, but I want you right now. If you're saved, that's your story. So I promised we'd get back to that little boy up in Tennessee. What happened that day when that preacher put his hand on his shoulder and said, now you're the child of, as he paused a moment, and then he winked at him. He said, you're a child of God. I can look at you and tell. You bear the family resemblance. Now go out there and live up to your legacy. And the reason I know that story is there was a preacher uh, who's dead now, but for years and years, preached, wrote articles and books. Fred Craddock was his name. Uh, the Craddocks, he and his wife, were, visit, were vacationing years ago, 1950s, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And they're sitting in a little cafe eating breakfast one morning, and there's this old man who's going around talking to everybody at every table. And Craddock is sitting there thinking, oh man, don't come talk to me. I don't feel like it. But the man comes over anyway, of course, and meets them. And, and when he finds out that Fred Craddock is a preacher, he said, well, I got a preacher story for you. And he tells him the story of the little boy. And at the end of the story, he says, well, I was that boy. And the truth is, if that old preacher had not told me I was a child of God, I probably never would have amounted to a thing. Now, y'all have a great vacation, and he left. And after he was gone, someone walked up to him and said, do y'all, do you folks know who that was that you were just talking to? They said, no. He said, that's Ben Hooper. He was governor of the state from 1911 to 1915. So from a child with nothing, he becomes governor of the state of Tennessee because he realizes who his father really is. You're not... You weren't born into a perfect family. You don't have a perfect family today, but you can be adopted into a perfect family, a family that will love you no matter what, a family that will ultimately meet all of your needs. So what happened to Jesus's earthly family? How does the story end? Well, we know that Mary came around. She overcame her doubts. We don't know how or how long it took. All we know is she's standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus dies. She's weeping alongside Mary Magdalene and, and the other women. And John, the only one of the 12 disciples we know who was still there. And we know that Jesus, as he hung there, breathing his last. And any physiologist, any doctor will tell you one of the things that kills you as you're crucified is you finally lack the ability to breathe in that exposed position, hanging there. And so for Jesus to speak while he hung there took an incredible force of will. But seven times he spoke. And one of those seven times he looked down at his mother standing next to John the apostle and said, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And from that day forward, John took Mary into his home and cared for her. We also know Acts 1.14 written about what happened right after Jesus ascended into heaven. It says, all these were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So now his brothers are followers too. Now his brothers believe in him. And you might say, the cynical side of you might say, oh yeah, of course, now he's resurrected from the grave. Now they're going to get in on his popularity and cash in. But if you know anything about the scriptures or about what was going on in the world, you know that's not the answer. Because the only people who knew Jesus was risen at that point was a small little group of people who were in hiding. Why? Because Jesus had been crucified and they were pretty sure they were next. There was no money in following Jesus at that point. There was no power in that. All there was was persecution. This was the worst time for someone to come out as a believer in Jesus. Now, I have one brother 
He's four years younger than me, and I love him to death. And I can tell you one thing for sure about him. He ain't God. And if he were to make one-tenth of the claims about himself that Jesus made about himself, I would think he was insane. The fact that Jesus' brothers not only joined the church, but called him Lord. James writes the book of James. Judas writes the book of Jude. And both, they say, they call themselves servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love my brother. I am not the servant of Billy Berger. What changed their minds? Something must have happened. We know what. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 said that Jesus appeared to several different people in his resurrected form, one of whom was James, his brother. For me, the fact that Jesus' own brothers called him Lord is one of the ultimate proofs that the Bible is true, that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And, and that's great. And you might say, okay, fantastic, but what does that do for me? What does that do for my family? Well, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you there is hope for your family. And the hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to just hear that and say, okay, yeah, that sounds like something a preacher would say. Let me explain what I mean when I say that. Because here's what I don't mean. I don't mean, okay, if you'll just join my church and become a Christian, get baptized, everything will be fine. Because that's not true. I'm telling you, in every pew in this church, there's a family that's struggling with something. Christians struggle just like non-Christians. What I'm saying is, the hope is in the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the good news that he came to bring us. Now, here's, here's how that looks. Did you know that Jesus is the only person in human history who was able to choose the circumstances of his own birth? Think about it. Jesus is the only person who's ever born at exactly the time he chose, in exactly the place he chose, to exactly the people he chose. Now, if you and I could make that choice, wouldn't we choose? Wouldn't we choose uh, wealthy parents and, and great resources? Wouldn't we choose a very healthy family environment and, and people who are going to be nothing but nurturing and believing and, and, and giving you every, every bit of support you need? Why did Jesus choose to be born into abject poverty? Why did he choose to be born in such a way that people would assume he was illegitimately born? Why would he choose to be born into a family that would experience problems like everybody else? Why not instead be born into a perfect family and then you can grow up and say, look how we did it. This is the way it should be done. Well, I'll answer that question for you. Jesus did not come to set a perfect standard for us to live up to. Jesus came to give us a gift that we get to receive. That's the good news. See, the good news is not be a good person and God may accept you. The, the good news is admit you're not a good person and let him do it for you. The good news is not you can build a perfect family if you follow these 10 steps. No, the, the good news is your family is never going to be perfect. So ask the Lord to change you. Now, let me explain how that works in real life. Let's say that, that Carrie and I are really mad at each other. I know it never happens, but let's say theoretically we're really mad at each other. In my flesh, this is my tendency, and I bet it is yours too. In that situation, all I'm thinking is I need to win. Does that mean yell and scream and intimidate and force my way? Does that mean 
mope and, and, and whine and, and try to guilt trip her. One way or another, I want to get the advantage. I want to get my way. That's my flesh. But the gospel instead says, this is at least 50% my fault. Carrie's over there going, eh, 85 to 90. But anyway, this is at least 50% my fault. So the more I focus on the percent that's her fault, the longer it's going to take for this to be resolved. The more instead I take responsibility for what I did, own it before the Lord, and ask the Lord to change me, the sooner and the better things are going to be. And if she's praying something similar at the same time, then not only are we going to make it, we're going to come out stronger on the other side. And let's say I didn't marry Carrie, but I married somebody who doesn't even believe in Jesus or someone who's a nominal Christian, but full of pride and self-righteousness who refuses to talk like this. Even if it's just me trying to live out the gospel, we're still going to win because the gospel is so compelling. It's going to win her over eventually if I just live it out faithfully. The gospel is so hard to deny. And that's the way it goes with all our family issues. If there's addiction in your family, we don't reject that person. We don't say, you're out. We've given you three chances. You're done. No, because Jesus didn't do that with us. And we're addicted to sin, but he sticks with us. And we stick with them. Even though sometimes our love for them is going to seem to them like hatred because we're standing between them and what they want because we're confronting them and saying to them things they don't want to hear. We stick with them and we love them to the end. And we know the Holy Spirit's at work in them as well. Let's say you're a parent and you've got a child who chooses a lifestyle that you know is wrong, that you know is self-destructive. There's that side of you that wants to say, okay, I'm just going to throw them out, throw them out of the house. They're not going to get my support anymore because they reflect badly on me as a dad, as a mom, as a family. That is absolutely wrong. You know why? Because Jesus didn't do that with you. When you were disgracing him, while you were still a sinner, he died for you. He didn't just put up with you. He came to you. He died for you. So what do you do with that child? You live out the gospel. You love them even more. You pray for wisdom and say, Lord, show me how to love them. And you're patient and you understand it's a long road. It's a marathon, not a sprint. You trust that, that God is speaking to their hearts in ways that you can't. And you pray, Lord, they're not listening to me. So send someone they will listen to. And you don't resent it when they listen to that person instead of you. And if we're estranged from some member of our family and and we haven't spoken in a while or there's bitterness and there's resentment there and there's, okay, I'm not showing up at Christmas if you're going to be there, if there's that kind of thing, you have to understand that healing starts with forgiveness in your heart. Forgiveness is where you say, I'm going to choose to put you ahead of myself even though I still feel angry with you. I'm going to choose to do what Jesus did for me. Jesus did not say, okay, when you get your act together, and grovel before me, then I'll let you in. No, Jesus came while we were still sinners, his enemies, and laid down his life for us. And that's no guarantee that if you just do a complete 180 and start loving that person and and treating them with kindness, it's no guarantee they'll immediately come home. They'll immediately resolve and, and, and reconciliation will just be easy as pie. But that's where it starts. 
And at least you can live with peace in your heart knowing that I've done everything I can to try to make things right with my brother, with my spouse, with my in-laws, with my uncle, with my cousin. See, deep down inside, you know what a family really is? A family is a bunch of sinners who need to learn how to love each other because it doesn't come naturally to any of us. We're just a bunch of sinners that need to learn how to love each other. And Jesus can make that happen. And quite honestly, he's the only one who can. 